What is a nation, and can it be Christian? On this episode, I talk with Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism, about his book, and about ethnicity and the basis for good law. So, join in as we build, fight, protect, and lead. This is The Patriarchy. Rise up, for men of God, have done with lesser... Rise up, for men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength and serve the King of Kings. Lift high the cross of Christ, tread where His feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, for The nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. That was Isaiah chapter 60, verse 12, and I am Joseph Spurgeon, pastor of Sovereign King Church. Welcome to the first ever video edition of the Patriarchy Podcast on Roundtable Media, a ministry of Sovereign King Church. Now, I got a question for you. How many opticians does it take to change a light bulb? Is it one or two? One or two? Number one, number two. Sp- speaking of changes, if you're a longtime fan of the show, you know that there have been some changes in the works. We have left the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Now, that's not because of any fallout with them. We still love and appreciate the men engaged in that work, and Lord willing, we'll be able to do plenty of work together have other opportunities to serve the Lord. No, that's not it. But something that is important to me is that a man in authority ought to be under authority. And so I wanted to make sure that this podcast is an extension of the ministry and call that the Lord has on me as a pastor. And so the elders and and some other men at Sovereign King Church have formed a media network called Roundtable Media to oversee and help produce this podcast. And so far it's been really good. I've been able to get an upgraded computer, uh, a new camera, uh, have new logos and artwork, and uh, a new website. And even better than that, uh, we are seeing some of the men in my church put their talents to use for all this kind of work. Another change that you're seeing is that our dear brother and sandwich eater, Tony Dupani, is sadly no longer with us. May he rest in peace. Uh, I mean, he's still alive, but he's been wanting to get some rest for some time now. So, Tony, we love you. We miss you. I do hope you get some rest. We are going to miss him. Grateful for all of his work that he has done over the years for this podcast. But changes happen, and they're not always bad. So changes have come, right? We're on a new network. We have new logos, new artwork, new video content. In fact, this podcast is now not just for your ears. You can watch it. Go to YouTube or uh, wherever you can watch video podcasts. Where there were two hosts, there's now just one. But with all the changes, I want you to know the patriarchy content that you have come to love and to know is still coming at you hot and fresh. And speaking of hot and fresh, if you've hung out in Christian circles on the internet for any length of time in the last few months, you're going to know the debate that's going on right now. I mean, it's hot and fresh. And that is about Christian nationalism. 
But it's not only going on in reformed Twitter groups, but more broadly. In fact, the term broadly is, keeps popping up in the media, often as a term of derision. So if you Google Christian nationalism, you'll get all kinds of articles. Take, for example, the leftist group, the Center for American Progress. It has a headline saying that Christian nationalism is, quote, the single biggest threat to American religious freedom. Did you hear that? The single biggest threat. If you want to know what some of the threat is, well, it could be that Christian nationalists are too concerned with personal liberties. At least that's what the article says. The article says, quote, There are some who subscribe to a more individual rights notion of freedom, that any infringement on a personal liberty is an attack on freedom and must be opposed. That notion of freedom, however, does not work in a large society, particularly one as pluralistic as the United States. So Christian nationalists want to take away your liberty by protecting your personal liberties. The article then goes on to say, quote, The Christian in Christian nationalism is more about identity than religion and carries with it assumptions about, listen to this, nativism, white supremacy, authoritarianism, patriarchy, and militarism. I mean, notice the connection, right? Wanting your nation to honor God with its laws and to protect personal liberties is the same thing as white supremacy. It's literally Hitler. And now, any law that a conservative passes that seeks to curb some kind of evil or allows some kind of uh, liberty is called Christian nationalist. The Washington Post just today wrote this headline. Quote, the Texas legislator has been gripped by Christian nationalism. How so? Well, by a legislator introducing a bill to let a teacher talk freely about their faith or pray. And another bill allowing schools to post the Ten Commandments. The article uh, does give a definition of Christian nationalism, and it's not too terribly bad. It says this, Christian nationalism rejects our legal and cultural tradition of religious pluralism. It holds that the United States was a Christian nation from its founding, and that Christianity should be the basis of public policy and political power. Again, not too far off. I would reword it, but notice how it assumes a legal and cultural tradition for the nation. Pluralism. That is, it is assuming that from the very beginning, our nation has been pluralistic, especially religiously. That is, uh, the nation's never seen itself as Christian. And uh, the people have never seen them away, even culturally. But is that true? Now, when I think about all this, I, I think, what you mean there are some people that think our country ought to serve Christ? That God's good and beautiful moral law ought to be the underpinning of our nation's laws? How terrible! Or at least that's what Texas Democrat Representative James Tallarico thinks when he says, quote, it not only violates our American values, but I think it violates my Christian values. You mean you're telling me that putting up the Ten Commandments in a classroom violates your Christian values? Now, I can understand why liberals hate the notion. Those who hate God might hate the notion. But someone who claims to be a Christian? In fact, even somewhat Christian conservatives like the pastors and the, the, the men of the G3 conference 
have started attacking the notion of Christian nationalism and, and going as far as making some really pretty silly arguments. But why? I mean, is it because Christian nationalism is some evil plot, right? Is it a call for the church to take over the civil government? Maybe that's what it is, right? The pastors like myself are supposed to leave behind our sheep, leave behind our calling, step outside of that, and begin trying to govern in the civil government realm. We're to try to tell the civil government exactly what laws must be made. And we're to do so because we're white supremacists. Is, is that what Christian nationalism is? Well, to get some answers to these questions and more, I've interviewed Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. So listen to this interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. And uh, pay attention. He's going to give a definition of Christian nationalism that I think is very helpful. Welcome back to the Patriarchy Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Wolf. He doesn't like to be called doctor, though, so we'll call him Stephen. But he's a, uh, a scholar in Wharfshire in central North Carolina. He lives with his wife and four children there. He recently finished a postdoctoral fellowship at Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Uh, Wolf is the host of Ars Politica podcast and has written for Mere Orthodoxy, First Things, Chronicles Magazine, and the History of Political Thought. You're also an author, and, and pretty an, an infamous author among uh, modern uh, evangelical and reform circles. You, you've kind of written something that has gotten the ire of many people, received a lot of criticism. What I'm talking about is your tweet. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, 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 the white evangelicals are the lone bulwark against moral insanity. And you also wrote the case for Christian nationalism. So welcome to the Patriarchy Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I guess we can kind of start out the gate with uh, why do you hate black people? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's quite uh, – I didn't know this was going to be a hostile interview. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. I always try to throw a, 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 a softball there for the first question. <laughs> okay. No, uh, you've written on Christian nationalism, and that's really what has gotten the uh, – the uh, our, a lot of people. It's just a lot of people have responded to it. I'm sure you've gotten both positive and – negative but uh what is christian nationalism i'm sure you get that question a lot so uh what is christian nationalism yeah that's the question everyone wants to ask and uh, it's it's uh it's it's difficult to answer it because there are so many different you could say views on it uh, it, it started off uh within recent years um what as a kind of a term of derision, a derogatory term, really made up by sociologists and maybe historians uh, to to really kind of um, to to kind of slap a label upon a certain type of person. So very so when people were using this term years ago, uh, I mean within the last ten years, no one was really claiming to affirm this term. What they were trying to do is they were trying to capture a certain segment of the population mostly people who are consistent voters for someone like Trump or, or for the Republican party. So typically white evangelicals. Um, and they wanted to find this term to, to label a constellation of beliefs. And so they called it Christian nationalism. And so that's, that's a sociological definition. And uh, these people are kind of all across the board. A lot of times they're Pentecostals. A lot of times they're just, you know, typical evangelicals. And so when I, when I, when, when I went to write the book, 
I didn't say, okay, what do these people say Christian nationalism is? That is, what do the sociologists say? What do historians say? I never, I, I didn't um, take their definition or they don't really have definitions. They just have a constellation of beliefs. Uh, but anyway, I, I didn't, I'm not trying to defend the six points of Samuel Perry's Christian nationalism. Or whatever. <clears throat> I said, well, I'm a Christian, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm a Christian and a nationalist, and I, as I thought about it, I like Christian nationalism. Now, what would it mean if I were to develop the the words associated with that term? So nation, nationalism, Christian, and Christian nationalism, and put those all conceptually together in a argument that I think is historically informed according to Protestant, historic Protestantism, um, but at the same time is nationalist. And so that's the product that's basically what I uh, produced. And of course, there's, there are other people coming out with, uh, like William Wolf, uh, my other brother, my bro- is coming out with, with these things uh, that, that are, that's different than mine. Uh, but, uh, and there, there are differences and we'll have to sort out what, what the, you know, how, how far the differences go and all that. But, but to get to what I think Christian nationalism is, the way I see it is that it's uh it's a Christian nation who's self-conscious of itself as a Christian nation, so they kind of know themselves that we are we are Christian people, and the that's that's a Christian nation. And the ism, the Christian, the nationalism, is them as a uh, as a people, as a self-conscious Christian people, saying we are going to organize, arrange ourselves to these the ends, the the to our good. And that good is not just kind of basic earthly goods that we share with all humanity, such as good vocations and you know uh, family life and civil justice, but also for Christian ends as as well. So, uh, wh- however that would look, I mean, it could be everything from supporting an established church to an unestablished, disestablished church to whatever. Uh, it could look all sorts of ways, but the 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 idea is that we're we we exist as a nation. We can kind of act upon ourselves through law and custom to order us to the highest good. And so that's that's the Christian element of Christian nationalism. It's So to put it sim- simply, it's a Christian people, self-conscious of itself as such, saying we're going to arrange ourselves for our good, and that good includes both earthly and heavenly good. So that's... Put it simply, and th- but it's like five hundred pages, so you can you can pick up the five hundred page version. Yeah, um, you know, some people have pushed back on the use of the term Christian nationalism because of all kinds of different meanings. In fact, like uh, I've heard some political theorists say that nationalism historically meant that proponents wish to separate and form their own nation define their boundaries, who's part of it. And, you know, you think about like nationalism, breaking up the European, uh, empires, the, 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 after the two world, uh, two world wars. So does Christian nationalism mean that Christians should separate from non-Christian and Americans form their own polity or, or not allow non Christians to participate in civil life? Well, it really depends on the circumstances. So I'm not trying to propose like a blueprint that everyone in, in the world and in all of time and all of places can can um, enact. But uh, I think it, it would be, I think if Christians are the majority or at least the principal part of that group, uh, I think they can have power uh, and they can, they can order it for Christian good in, you know, for Christian goods, good. Uh, e- even to... 
even if the non-Christians don't like it and they don't consent to it, um, because so I do think, you so if you have a Christian nation, a, we can assert a sort of confidence that then orders that nation to the things of Christ. Uh, and it, you know, it could also mean separation from people as well. Uh, I mean, so it just depends on what's feasible at the time. Okay. Well, maybe uh, another helpful thing is to think about what is a nation? What is a nation? Because I know that's probably, that's a big part of the definition yeah. and and the debate. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a nation, this is one of those things where, and this goes back to like Aristotle's, that you can only define something uh, based upon its, to the, to the, not everything can be like geometrically defined such that it's not like borders where you have a line you can imagine a border on a line on a line on a map or something like that. So, so it's, it might be easy to def- define a nation, but to actually find the boundaries of it is not always easy. That's true for a lot of things, everything from mo- like what is moderation. But anyway, um, so I, I preface it that because some people like, like uh, some I've been, I've been criticized for not having like this precise, like people cannot easily identify nationhood because of the way I've defined it, but that's just the nature of things. Uh, I, I still think we'd want to say that there's a difference between French and German, despite the fact that in the border between the two, there might be some fuzziness on on what mm-hmm. you're in and what who's out. Anyway, that being said, I think a, na- a nation is more, it's not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of propositions. Uh, it's, uh, it's you having uh, the commonalities with people that's rooted in some kind of ancestral connections uh, and uh, that's look that's oriented around a certain place. So you have a connection of people in place, but it's mainly based upon your your commonalities with regard to culture, uh, mutual understanding, manners, language. Those are the sort of things that that make a culture. So if uh, you are make a nation. So it's, it's all sorts of things. It's not purely your like blood relations as if you're all literally cousins. Um, though I do think like your ancestry in a certain place obviously matters. Uh, it obviously matters that my grandfather was in world war two. It matters that other people's grandfathers or fathers or great grandfathers were in world war two. It's a point of connection between people that goes back ancestrally. Of course, it matters that your grandparents grew up in this town or they came to this town and they established a household here and they had children. Of course, that matters to you in relation to that place. And it would matter if your ancestors go back to the Civil War, go back to uh, Revolutionary War. All that stuff, of course, matters. And it's your blood relations going back tied to a certain place. So this idea that, that that your ancestry is irrelevant to nationhood is just utterly false. At the same time, I, I think that we can understand a nation not in terms of it's not like a genetic test. It's not as if you can you can uh, 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 take everyone around you and and say okay let's let's see uh, what sort of genetics you have and therefore you're in or out. But that's obviously not true. We've all we've all interacted with people as if we're sort of co-members of the of the same nation who have very different ancestry, whether either whether it be different you know ancestral origins for Europe or ancestral origins from Asia or, or wherever, we've all had those interactions that would, that would not preclude people from being part of the nation in our, in our basic experience. Um, so, 
that, that definition makes it hard sometimes to identify who's in and out. I admit that because I'm not I'm I'm not defined according to nation state. It's not as if if you're within these boundaries and you're you're deemed a citizen by the state, you're in this thing I'm calling nation. I think it'd be very possible that you have citizens who are under the nation state who are not properly speaking would fit the definition of a co-member of a nation. Um, so yeah, it's fuzzy, but I, I so what even would America then even count as a nation according to your definition? I think it, in some ways it's like a, it's like a kind of empire. I mean, America's America's challenging because it's not like people, they're instinctive. Like nowadays they'd say, okay, well you're, you're talking about white versus black and black versus Hispanic or like all these different, but that's not really the case. Like I would, I, I lived, I grew up in California. There's places in California that I would say culturally are radically different than cult, than maybe like white areas of the mm-hmm. South or, uh, so th- there's just those, there's such radical differences that it's, it seems as if the United States is a kind of empire or maybe a different sort of thing. All right. So there could be, there could be actually many nations in, in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in anywhere. And there are really the most nation states are kind of compro- com- composed of several different peoples or sub peoples. So. So, it's not so unheard of. This, so how would something like you're proposing work then within, a, 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 I don't know, an empire or, or within uh, our own country, if we put it that way, how, where you, or any country where there's a few different nations? Yeah. I mean, even if you're in the same, like the same state in America, you could still say, hey, we, we even though we kind of are different i mean it's it's difficult this is because i don't want to like lay out clear boundaries of who's in and out but but the point is like if if the state has if one state has different people kind of different people somewhat different people in it but they all say hey we're christian let's kind of form a a christian government then we can or we can do something with with at, at the state level then that's certainly possible it doesn't have to have like a dominant group it doesn't it can it could be a like a mutual alliance between different peoples or the lines could be so fuzzy that it's really not even profitable to make any kind of separation between peoples. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's all this is all very challenging in our context because we don't. The United States had a dominant ethnicity for a long time, and that was kind of this Anglo-Protestantism, and that's been completely undermined by European immigration a uh, hundred years ago, and then non-European immigration from. 1965 until now uh and so the idea of a dominant ethnicity in the united states has has become is pretty much impossible at this point so it would have to be if there are different ethnicities in the united states it would have to be some kind of mutual alliance to construct a christian state of some sort okay so it, it um so that, that kind of leads me to my question about how much ethnicity plays a part in it and actually what you what how would you define ethnicity so i i basically say ethnicity and nations the same thing people don't like that because they have the mindset of a nation state because they think okay that basically they conflate nation and, and state and and the boundaries of a state and that's just mm-hmm. uh, it's a modern invention to think that way uh, and a lot of people don't think that way. So if you go to Eastern Europe, if you're, you go to Slovakia, 
they have Slovakians and then they have Hungary, Hungarians, but it's in the same state. The dominant ethnicity are the, are the Slovakians and they control most of, they're kind of the nation state, but within the borders are Hungarians who have no interest in becoming Slovakians. So uh, the, the same is true in, in uh, Ukraine and, and uh, uh, um, like Romania has Hungarians as well. So it, it's a, uh, so in, in a way, those countries are multinational with the dominant ethnicity. And but so my, my point is, I think nation, I mean, you according to the way I use the terms, <clears throat> the way I use the terms nation, ethnicity are the same. Um, now, if you want to, again, if you want to talk in terms of nation state and you want to conflate boundaries and nation, then that would obviously, I, you'd have to use a different definition. That, that's fine. You just have to be clear what, you, what you're doing. I just wanted to emphasize, I think what's be, been de-emphasized especially in the West, is particularity, is that there is difference and that difference is good. So, uh, and it's worth protecting. So I, I would support Germany and France and Netherlands uh, restricting immigration flow into their country precisely because they are distinct peoples. Or England, I mean, or, or Ireland. I feel it's, so, it's awful to watch Ireland just like, implode right now because now they're allowing in like tens of thousands of migrants into Ireland. Uh, and it's just going to radically transform that country and create the same problems we have in the United States with, with these, with, uh, with like foreign immigration, also with England and, and of course all of Europe. So anyway, um, what, what would you that. say then to somebody? Cause I could hear somebody, I mean, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Um, but somebody is going to say, but what you've just allowed for is like segregation and where you know what I mean? Where you have black people have their their water fountains and white people have theirs and the minorities are mistreated in this. How does how does that all play out? Yeah, well that's all that was all a matter of law. So um so I, I wouldn't support separation on the basis of law. Uh and so so that that would be a that'd be a problem, but yeah, the political theory part of it though is based on law, right? Or how do you how do you how do you make that distinction? Is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I mean, th there'd still be freedom of association, and I'm, I'm I'm talking about the United States context. It would be wrong to to have legally enforced segregation, but I do think people have the freedom of association, so they can they can live wherever they want. Um, the, the alternative, and and generally speaking, people kind of do live together. So where I live. Uh, if you go to a neighborhood and you see one person who seems is Indian or Hindu, it's a good bet that that entire neighborhood is Indian and Hindu. <laughs> uh, and it's because they congregate around each other. They prefer to be around each other. And that's just that's generally the case. Uh, I mean, if someone comes in from Mexico uh, and in and, and here, they, they would generally speaking, try to find a community that is that is their dominant or, you know, is Mexican or, or Spanish speaking. Uh, it's just what naturally people do. Um, but yeah, but legally enforced separation wouldn't, wouldn't be good. And really, I mean, we're, we're talking about like, I, I think what the United States needs to do, one of the reasons why I'm against, why I want to restrict immigration entirely, is I think we're going to have to have some kind of assimil assimilation integration with the new people here and um, and and somehow be able to form a a, a sense of peoplehood that is not uh that is not hostile and negative 
that somehow it's positive. Um, and so that's, which, which doesn't necessitate separation. It necessitates some kind of integration, assimilation, and or ethnogenesis or whatever it is. Uh, um, so I know that answers your question, but yeah, but yeah, no, like, no, I'm not calling for segregation, but, but again, like, like you said that some people, it's important to like talk about some people might think you're thinking of that. And I think that whenever you talk about ethnicity and, you know, I guess on the borders, you talk about race, mm -hmm. you're always, there's always within, especially, well, everyone, but especially white people, this, this nagging suspicion and, and, and discomfort and they want to go from, okay, Wolf said this to like Wolf's a Nazi or Wolf's is segregated. I'm not <laughs> saying you did that, but I'm saying that that's like where yeah, people yeah, yeah. go. They go from, he's talking about difference. Oh no, he must want to enslave black people. Or and like you're a chemist or, or, or you're whatever. Or you're a chemist or something. Because we're, okay. first of all, we have psychological problems, which means we, we make the jump. Like we, we make the jump. And then when we make the jump, we only have a few set of terms that we can use to talk about it. So you, we have racism, we have kinism, and that's it. So if he's a Christian talking about these things, he's a kinist, even though like the, all the kinists have attacked me repeatedly. So it's, so the point is we have this like psychological problem and then we were constrained by the language we're given to talk about things. And so people can't actually, we can't have a, a conversation about ethnicity in the United States and difference and the goodness or badness of difference because people they get their discomfort is comforted by the euphoria of calling someone a kinist or a racist um, and I, I i think we, we have to talk about these things and we, we can talk about them without tossing out these knee-jerk terms like white supremacy and white nationalism kinism and racism and whatever segregationism so anyway, I'll just leave it that. I, I mean, I, get I found that <laughs> that you know my wife's Filipino, and so Filipinos and and other nations that I've been have no problem actually having these discussions. Yeah, it, it's really it's this thing yeah. about we white people get um, antsy about it. Yeah, it's um, yeah. but it, it, it's because it is it's messy. I think trying to figure out how to to work it all out, and then in our context where. Uh, there, there is so many different ethnicities and cultures that have been brought into under one civil government. It's, it's messy to work with. Well, let me kind of change directions a little bit. A, a lot of your book hinges on traditional two kingdom theology. Could you explain the difference between traditional two kingdom theology, modern R2K stuff, and and maybe one kingdom, oh, well, Kuiperism? type theology could you maybe explain that for our listeners yeah i think the the fundamental difference i mean the, the two kingdoms broadly speaking is that there's um is that one kingdom is principally kind of invisible or eschatological and that it's all, all true believers belong to this kingdom so it's uh it's it's fundamentally an invisible reality and you, you, uh, it's all, it's all, all, all the elects. Com it's composed of the elect. It's, and that is that would be properly, properly speaking, the kingdom of Christ. There's also a vis the visible, the visible expression of that is essentially the church on earth. So that would be the the one kingdom, sometimes called the redemptive kingdom by Presbyterians, and that, and that's more spiritual. It's more divine, um, 
and that that concern pr primarily concerns the soul good of the soul and eternal life okay uh and the other kingdom would be that usually called the civil kingdom or the temporal kingdom and that would concern mainly the civil affairs outward order decorum and like the that's the realm of the civil magistrate so the spiritual kingdom is kind of the realm of uh of of salvation and also ministers administering word and sacrament well as the civil kingdom is the kingdom of is the temporal kingdom um concerning civil magistrates and that's that's so that's the broad distinction the difference is that the classical 2k is just what everyone you know broadly speaking there were differences um but uh, broadly speaking the classical two kingdoms theology is what everyone affirmed from calvin to richard hooker to Simon Rutherford, everyone, everyone affirmed that there were two kingdoms, um, except they just disagreed on what the nature specifically of the spiritual kingdom was and other things too, but we, that's not important. Um, the difference between like the modern 2K and the classical 2K really concerns uh, the, the, the role of the civil government in relation to the spiritual kingdom. And whereas classically, Calvin and everyone else would pretty much say that civil government ought to be a minister of God and work within their within their power and capacity to direct people to the true to eternal life, which which primarily means to direct them to the visible the, the instituted church. So this would mean Sabbath laws, you know, you punish punish blasphemy, uh, heresy, because those could affect people's souls. So um not because civil power can convert them or or because you're punishing them for bad belief, but because those beliefs when expressed can lead other people to to error or sin and, and apostasy or something. Um, so that's a classic opinion. I think it's perfectly coherent. Uh, the, the idea is that the temporal is ordered to the spiritual, meaning the it's not the temporal is not subordinated to like the ministers in that sense, but it's it sees its principal function as aiding the church's mission of administering the things of eternal life. Okay. Um, that's classical in the, in the modern version, they basically say that every, anything that's Christian related has to be confined to the, the, the church itself. Meaning that the, anything that's anything that's any, in a way redemptive or concerns a soul, it must stay within the visible church or the instituted church. And so civil government can only administer things that are generally human. So, you know, like don't steal, don't murder, don't this or that. That's a civil side, but they really have no cognizance or, uh, of the spiritual side. And so they just administer human things purely without any relation, like cognitive, like a cognitively like aware of anything spiritual. So that's why they'll, they'll talk a lot about natural law and civil government as a constraining preservative force but not as one that directs people self uh, with with knowledge to eternal life. That's just the role of the church. And that would be like a Van Drun and Michael Horton. Um, R. Scott Clark, Tom Hicks, I guess, would be in there. I think that's his mm -hmm. name. Other people. Uh, it's it's really just purely ahistorical. It, it relies, it usually relies on, on uh, essentially it relies on saying that the reformers up all the way into the 18th century were wildly incoherent. It's as, it's as if they they do they did all this stuff and they never thought, <laughs> they never thought maybe um, 
they never thought maybe this is a holdover from medieval um, Constantinian or uh, from uh, Roman Catholicism. They never thought that, uh, surprisingly. Um, but it, so it's ahistorical, it, it, incoherent, all that. And I criticize them. All right, so that. And then there's like the Kyperian One Kingdom. I I, I don't even know what, how that whole One Kingdom thing would work. I think it's incoherent. Um, so we're basically bringing heavenly life to earth. Uh, and that there's, I think, major problems with that. Uh, and, um, it's, it's not, it's not only utopian, it's, it's pretty much, I think, world destroying in the sense that it, uh, would, would upend the social and political systems that we need. It would, it would essentially require egalitarianism because men and women are equal in the kingdom of God. There's no male and female in Christ. Um, it would, it would eradicate ethnic difference. It would all sorts of things. Um, so, but I, I, I guess there be, there'd be many, else. there'd be many kind of Kyperians though, that would not be egalitarian and that would yeah. argue that, uh, Jesus's one kingdom, he's reign over all the earth is, uh, pushing back evil and instilling God's commands. And they would put under God's commands then, male and female, like male headship and those type of things. Uh, they, I think they would probably, from what I know, some of them, many of them, they would arrive at a lot of the same points that you do, maybe practically, but. Well, I, I think it also, it, you hear some of these guys talk as if, as if the, the so the, 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 so it's, my perspective is that the church is more of an upward institution towards eternal life. So that's two kingdoms. I think that's, I think that's what everyone said until, you know, Lightheart uh, thought of, thought up some stuff or other people, <laughs> James Jordan thought of things. Um, I could be wrong about that from, but, but the, these guys, they, they tend to think that the, that now the church then is like the institute just is now this, the hub from which the kingdom comes on earth. And that kingdom is a sort of, is like visible. It's like a, it's, literally immanentizing the eschaton in action because they, they it flows through the church so that the church's mission is actually radically earthly uh which is really fundamentally opposed to i think the reformed tradition um really the christian tradition broadly um that sees the earth earth as mission or the church's mission is utterly earthly when i think it was always oriented toward heaven um and uh yeah and so i think there's i think I think there's a major, I mean, we're similar in politics in the immediate realm, but it, it just seems to me that, that you're, that, that kind of position requires a type of egalitarianism, like just logically, I know they would deny it. Um, but so this, this is helpful stuff. Actually, you, but this is where I found your book most helpful. I, I had, I've come out of the reconstruction movement. That's theonomy. Um, I got into I, I, a little bit of my backstory is I became a Calvinist by reading John Calvin's Institutes. Okay. <laughs> like I, I had never heard of Piper or Sproul or anything. Somebody brought up Calvin. I had heard the name. I was like, well, let me go read it. And then, and so when I went into seminary and I had studied a lot of Calvin, a lot of the reformers on political and civil life. And then I read a book that, uh, mentioned that there are people that believe that God's law ought to apply to civil government, like the Ten Commandments. And it, it footnoted Rush Dooney. So then I, I 
got into that and looked at that and, and was like, well, this has got to be what I'm holding. But as I've studied more, I've started to see some of the differences there. And I've, I think I've always held to the, the more reformed Presbyterian Westminster view. But one of the things, I guess what I want to ask is, I know there's a lot of theonomists that have latched on to Christian nationalism as a term. Where would you say the major difference between you and, and they lie? Or would you even use that term for yourself? Uh, theonomy? I mean, I, I think yeah, it, if I yeah. did, it would cause too much confusion. Um, okay. Yeah. The, the, I mean, there's the obvious differences. I, I don't, I mean... I guess it, it would it really depend on if we sat down and kind of said what laws should we have, we might be in, in a lot of agreement. Maybe I think that that my my position is far more that that law and custom is is more uh, arises organically from the people themselves instead of having this blueprint or this top down approach to what ought to be in any given context. So in that sense, I'm far more like a paleoconservative, you could say a Burkean type, I guess. Um, th that kind of thing that somehow it's, it arises from the characteristics and nature of the people should be rooted in natural law. Um, and I think theonomists tend to think more in terms of rubber stamping this, this like this blueprint or this, this kind of code that's provided for us. I know that's kind of, that might be a vulgar description of, of what they believe or simplistic. But well, So when, when you said natural law there, do you mean... So from what I understanding, reformed is natural law is the Ten Commandments uh, or the Ten Commandments is natural law and scripture aided. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, is, is, is that is that what you would? Yeah, is that what you would say? OK, so you're, we are talking about the Ten Commandments. Well, I, I, you just said and I actually this is on my notes to ask you. So you brought it up is that you don't think civil magistrates are to make laws simply because God commands them, but because they're all they're to be they're to do good. And so my, my ears kind of perk up because it's like, well, I think civil magistrates are to obey God's law or, or they'll be judged. Psalm two. Right. Uh, be wise. Kiss the sun. I might be misunderstanding you on that. So I'd like you to kind of maybe flesh that out for me. Uh, the difference yeah. between they have to obey God's law or and 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 but you've said well, they don't enact it just because God commands it. So I'm trying to figure out. No, Where no. That so, is. okay. So the way the way I see it is that the the natural law is a set of principles. So I kind of like love your neighbor as yourself is a principle. Um, don't do anyone injury. That's kind of a principle. Um, don't steal someone's stuff. Th those are all principles. But then in in any given situation, you have to decide whether uh, whether or how you apply that principle. And I think the the reason we have authorities in the in different spheres, from family to church to state, is that these authorities have the ability to enact the application of principles. So the the so we ought not steal. Um, that that can be should be applied in different circumstances through the the law with with punishments that are appropriate given the circumstances, and. Um, and so there can be variability of laws like that given the situation circumstances. So that's all I mean. So the, the laws have they have to follow God's law, but the law as an original moral law prior to Mosaic law is a set of principles that need to be applied. 
They have to have application. So, so you're, you're making the distinction between like the positive application, the positive law of the civil government versus yeah. the, the moral law. And you're saying the positive law, there's not like a specific command that they have to do make this particular code, for example, like a, a law. Yeah, like and kind of like, I, yeah, honor your father and mother just as, as at an individual level. How you would fulfill that principle varies widely from, I mean, are you, are you given a eulogy, you know, are you, um, or are you, um, are you ha having to obey them when you, when you don't agree uh, or, or, or what, what is it? I mean, so there's all sorts of uh, different ways given the circumstances and the, and the and time and place for um, that, that would, that would make that, that would so to fulfill that in a different, um, in very different ways. This is actually, this point's very important, but this is the patriarchy podcast. And so we're encouraging men to be men and fathers and, and mm. them to submit to godly authority and exercise godly authority. And my experience as a pastor is that a lot of men understand this, but then they have a hard time figuring out, like working out the details as regard, mm. like, especially when it comes to obeying civil magistrates, like they want a specific verse or they're not going to obey. And, and, but they wouldn't act that way in their own home. Like if mm. their wife talked to them the way that they talk about the civil government or their church leaders, mm. it's because of a, a wooden sense of this. So I think, I think your view is helpful to think that they have wisdom, but I guess the question is then how do we know where the limits then of their authority are regarding yeah. this? Yeah. I mean, uh, there you mean the civil magistrate? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking civil magistrate, yeah. like the, like yeah. so. Let's take honor your father and your mother. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's areas where they, the even in the Old Testament, the judicial law had for discipline for disobedient children. Obviously, adult children that are rebels, uh, and they were punished by the civil government. But what? What limit would we put? Because that's a code. But w is there a limit on what the civil government can do there regarding that? Yeah, I, I think, I think for for laws, uh, the way I the way I say this, there's there's two requirements for a law to be just, and that is one that it has to be righteous in itself, it has to be something that you can actually, apart from circumstances, you could you could derive from the moral law. Um. And but at the same time, it has to be good. It has to be a good law in the in the sense that it has to in it, in, it, in its effects, it has to produce good. So you can you can perceive of like you can think of laws that were good at one time, and then they and then they became bad. Like they became bad because circumstances changed, or the lack of a law, uh, like the, you, the a need for an, uh, a law arose because of circumstances that changed. Like the one example I use would be. You know, there's few people in an area, and they're good fishermen, and they they are, they don't overfish, they don't use nets, they they're just sportsmen. Uh, then there's no need to have catch limits, or maybe even not even a license. But all of a sudden, new people come in, and perhaps there's a lot of people, or perhaps there's a sort of people who want to exploit uh, these people's good, uh, um, good work in preserving this area. Well, maybe then, okay, we do need a law because these people are bad, or they're exploiting. So then a new law is required to maintain that original end. Like, well, what good was there before? There was a good of sportsmanship and fishing and, and outdoorsmanship. 
and but now these people are, are starting to undermine that good and so you you would then enact a law to preserve that good um so it really comes down to this is why i say like the that laws are things that you can't just say okay these are righteous and therefore let's do it it has to also be are these actually producing good in our community so this is one of the one of the roles of a, a good civil government and civil leaders is to constantly be kind of reevaluating re whether or not the things they're telling people to do and not do are actually conducive to their good. Uh, so I know that that makes it well, a lot of people. Well, it sounds like aut autonomy and it sounds like too much reliance on reason and all that. Um, I think scripture can inform all these things as well. But in the end, if one of your laws is actually causing more harm than good, then you got to cut out that law. Like, like what if, for example, you have, so, I mean, one thing in the Ninth Commandment, usually they include the idea of uh, preserving your neighbor's honor, right? So you, or his, his reputation. So it's not just don't lie. The positive is that you have, you have a right to your good reputation. So what if you make a law that pretty much let, lets you sue in court for any kind of like slight you feel? Now, in itself, that seems like that would be okay, but what, the effects of that would be terrible because now every single, every single time someone feels a slight or some offense, they're going to put it and they're going to tie up the courts and make a whole, you know, a litigious society like you wouldn't believe. So a law in that sense, okay, well, it says honor, you know, uh, that, that, uh, that God's law says we must keep preserve people's honor. Uh, well, okay. Well, how do you do that? So that it actually will be effective. Well, you make it so it has to be a pretty serious offense that actually publicly damages that you can measure and all that sort of thing. So, um, mm -hmm. anyway, uh, it's a lot of wisdom uh, required. I mean, it's why God puts people in authority. Well, and it's just like, like, so in, in the United States, I would say that we, that our, we've overextended freedom, freedom of speech into this realm, especially with, with regard mm -hmm. to journalism is we, we, we say, okay, freedom of the press is really good. So we're going to let them kind of get away with what seems to be saying lies, um, that are, that are damaging to people. Um, and we're going to make it really hard to pr produce some kind of defamation case against them. And, uh, and so, um, I, so that, that law is trying to preserve one good, but at the expense of these other goods, which means that the journalism pretty much has the opportunity to defame people left and right. Um, and I think, in, I think there should be a law that actually does apply to them more that brings them accountable, uh, because more, more harm is done than good. So the point being, you always have to think through which laws are we going to have to produce the, the best good? And that's the, that's the role of jurists and, and civil leaders. Well, I got a, a couple more minutes to, to hold you here, just about okay. five more minutes yeah, or so. And then um, a couple more questions and I'll try to wrap you up here. But um, you got a lot of pushback saying you were, you were going to assume reform theology and you were not doing exegetical work. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple questions. I know from a technical standpoint, you said this is outside your realm of expertise, but you're not saying you're incapable of doing this work, right? Like as a born again believer, doing it on your own. Well, when you say it, I've read good exegesis and no, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I mean, but the point being like, if, if you, if you pick up like an exegetical work, I can't do that. So, um, but as, as like a regular believer and so that's what I'm getting at as a Christian, yeah, certainly you should I could, be able to read God's word. There's perspicuity yeah. of scripture. 
yeah, yeah. You should be able to under. So like, I basically, could you, if you just were to throw out, I'm not going to tell you to actually do the work. If you just throw out some passages in the scripture that you would point people to regarding some of the things that you've been saying. Well, the, the thing is that I, the things that I assumed were standard reform theology that essentially everyone held until the basically the 20th century. And I, I explicitly say that I'm doing a work of reformed political theory. And so yeah. I'm going to assume what the theologians do. Because, I mean, if you pick up like pick up a work like Francis Turretin's Elinctic Theology, okay? To, to answer one question, the guy could go on 100 pages. And so I'm just going to say, I think what he, the work he did is marvelous, and I'm going to assume it. And by the way, everyone else assumed this too, except for a few people. <laughs> and so I, that's you have to start from somewhere, because I wanted to be a logical argument that started with a set of assumptions that proceeded from those assumptions. And um, I think the the event, it's a very much a, a modern 20th century need for there to be like a parentheses verse or a like a, a some a random verse quoted that then demonstrates some point. And I, it's just, it's a very much a, like a, I think it's also a very Baptist uh, approach. I mean, if you, if you pick up a lot of systematic theologies that are actually doing theology, a lot of the work they do is actually a matter of sorting out the logical implications, uh, trying to avoid trying to avoid heresy sometimes by uh but by even though the, our presbyterian forefathers found it maybe they didn't want to do it from what i understand but they found it necessary to do the work of proof texting the westminster confession of faith yeah because um, i mean i think what you're saying obviously has biblical background well, the thing is, if if you affirm my premises and my argument is logical, then you have to agree with my conclusion. So it's, I, I get frustrated because it's as if, it's as if using logic is less reliable than quoting a verse next to something and doing some simplistic exegesis on this on it is is a. Whereas, I mean, if if you agree with the premise that the two premises and it's a valid conclusion, then you have to agree with the conclusion. So, um, that so that that's my point. It's very frustrating okay. me because, like, if you look at if you look well, at I don't old, mean to frustrate you. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at like old texts of the of of, uh, of politics, like just look at Althusius' Politica. He has he does like he does have footnotes. He cites verses, but he never exegesis exegetes anything. In fact, what he does most of the time is he cites other theologians. He says, the, the theologians say this, uh, and so we, let's leave that to the theologians. And he just assumes it as part of his reformed theological system. Um, but you could understand the danger behind that. I mean, there's a danger with that. I'm not saying don't do it. The, the danger is I, that your arguments become more and more distant from God's word, which is our standard. I'm not saying you, I'm not accusing you of this. I'm just saying this is where you get, I mean, the need for the Reformation was to go back to the sources and honestly back to Scripture because people start doing theology based on what other people have done and based on, and then that other people's word becomes the standard. Yeah. Uh, except that 
that everything that I assumed is either the majority or the received position of the Reformed tradition prior to the 20th century. And, uh, and, and then I, I explicitly in my methodology say that it's a Reformed political theory, so I'm going to assume the theology. And, uh, and, and oftentimes, and again, it's, it's working out something logically uh, from the premises. And but if you, I mean, if you read a lot of like political works, they don't actually demonstrate their case. They think like citing a verse and quoting it actually demonstrates their, their conclusion. Um, when it doesn't really at all. And then, and then you just, and then you start debating whether you can use that, that verse for that position. Whereas I'd rather sure. say, Hey, all you guys reformed, um, all these other reformed guys pretty much affirm this universally. And so I'm going to go from there to affirm something that's I think is a necessary consequence of that uh, that position, um, uh, and so, but people in, instead of people dealing with the arguments, like a lot of people who have disputed my methodology haven't actually disputed my premises or the argument itself. They've just disputed the methodology, which essentially means that that they are denying the role of logic in producing truth. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I, I, I just think that like, it's the, it's the, I just think that's like one of the worst critiques of the book. That's why I get all fired up about it. <laughs> I, 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 I know you do. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Okay. okay well, uh, if you got time, two last questions. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh what would you say to someone who says the whole debate over Christian nationalism is like a waste of time, right? They might say our culture, the nation is definitely light years from anything like this. It's obvious from the pushback that you're getting that even the church broadly is resistant to it. So why talk about it? Why is it important? Uh, it's it's important one I, well one I think it's it's actually bringing back magisterial Protestant political thought so that's one but that but the book is not just a re, like a regurgitation of that like ninety percent of it is that like ninety percent of it I'm just literally giving the old formulations in a, in a little bit different way um, but the other part is the nationalist part and and I I'm not just kind of riding off of the popularity or the infamy of the term. I actually think it is a Christian nationalism. The nationalist part is saying, is trying to tell Christians that not only can you be, believe in the magisterial Protestant tradition, which says you can have power, you can exercise it for your good, but oh, by the way, you can, you, you can love your nation and be a, and call yourself a Christian people and self-confidently act for your good. I think the big the big hindrance is we are tied. The Christians are stuck in this idea that whatever we as Christians do, it has to be universally good, it has to be good for every single person, non-Christian, Muslim, Hindu. We have to think in terms of that. It has to be human good entirely, and so we always justify ourselves in that way. Like, oh, it, it, it's a, the reason why we want religious liberty is because it'll it benefits everyone. We always jump to that universality. I think that's a Western thing. It's not a, I mean. I think it's a somewhat of a Christian thing, but as an abuse. But uh, but uh, part of the nationalist part is say no, like you as a Christian people can say no. We're going to arrange ourselves for our particular good, and uh, and kind of focus on that. It's it's getting away from that that universality that it kind of dominates our our psyche. Um, 
So, but another point too, before, another point, it reinvigorates us. It's a reinvigoration, revitalization, and, um, and it, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sense of us and a sense of we that we can restore, particularly in America, which we, I think were, for most of our history, understood ourselves as a Christian nation until very, until the last few decades. Um, so anyway. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree that as Christians, we have to put up, there's a, a very effeminate nature of a lot of things uh, of many Christians have grasped and they've adopted many philosophies from the world. And so I appreciate, in one sense, I want to say the manliness of what you've written and um, the fact that you don't back away from um, even saying hard things. And they, uh, I really appreciate that. Well, let me, yeah, yeah. last thing, last question was what we always tried to do as bring it down from the shelf, put it in somewhere where our men can actually act on it. What can our listeners apply from the concept of Christian nationalism? What I know you could probably write a whole book on that, but in the time you got left, however much time you have, what are real practical things that men can do with this knowledge? Uh, well, I think one thing would be ordering your home properly. So making sure you're doing family worship, uh, and, and leading the home. So I'm sure that's the sort of thing you guys talk about a lot here. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, uh, losing weight and gain muscle. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the other thing I, I think, um, exercise is, is really key. Um, not, not cardio, but anyway, but exercise is, is really important for, I think young men or just men in general. Uh, and, uh, and also the, the last thing would be finding local networks of like-minded guys. Uh, who you can have open conversations with. Um, and this isn't always everyone at your church. It's not, a, it's not any random person you meet, but uh, finding, hopefully on, online, you, you, you build up some reputation with someone as someone who can say, say things and you can meet, you can know them locally and, uh, and have kind of a, a friendship around people who can, a face-to-face where you can, you can talk openly and honestly with people about things and, and not have a, your guard not have to put up the guard that because we live in such insane times that that saying something that everyone believed a few decades ago would would get you uh, in trouble so anyway yeah well steven i appreciate yeah appreciate it i appreciate your time and and uh the work that you've done in writing the book and and uh i get i i think i've been helped buy it and uh i'd encourage our listeners get a copy of it read through it even if there's parts you disagree with i think you will agree yeah. overall so yeah if you agree with right, everything well, then you agree with, with more than i do <laughs> <There's, there's, laughs> you know you you publish it and you're like yeah maybe i could have uh maybe that's not right but anyway yeah thanks for thanks for having me. a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a christian nation as a Christian nation, in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. This is the definition of Christian nationalism given by Stephen Wolf. It's simply a people acting like Christians in every area of life, including in making laws that are good and in harmony with the laws of God, laws that promote the general welfare of the people and even protect uh, the gospel as it goes forth. 
Yes, Stephen Wolf takes several hundred pages to flesh that out, and he gives some application, and maybe he has some areas and issues you may not agree with. You may not agree with all his application, but I don't see how one can be a Christian and reject the basic definition. But I don't know. Maybe you don't like Stephen Wolf. Okay. But what about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Here is the American version. It says this about the civil magistrate. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory. Did you hear that? For his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. It goes on to say, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially, listen to this, to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So, for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Notice that the civil magistrates are under God for his own glory and for public good. They're to maintain piety. Now, isn't that what Stephen Wolf has been saying? Isn't that what Christian nationalism is? Okay, well, maybe you're not a Presbyterian. Westminster's not your confession. Okay. What about Holy Scripture then? When it says in Psalm chapter 2, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, what is this passage talking about? I mean, we got we to gotta figure that out, right? It says the nations are raging against God and his anointed or the Messiah. When was that? Or, well, the apostle Peter says this first part was speaking, at least in part, about when the Jews and the Romans gathered to crucify the Lord. In the book of Acts he says this clearly. Actually, the Christians say that. And they said, uh, when that happened, those people were raging in vain. They murdered Jesus, but they ended up doing only what God had predestined to occur. But then Jesus rose from the dead. The book of Romans says, it was in the resurrection that Jesus was declared to be the Son with power. The Son of God with power. Now, it's not that Jesus became the Son of God as if he had not been that before the resurrection. He's eternal the eternal son of God, but rather the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the vindication of Jesus as the son of God. It's the proof positive that Jesus is who he says he is. In fact, the resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath. And so on the cross and in his burial, the humiliation of Jesus Christ was complete. He had descended from heaven. He had descended all the way down into death itself. But the resurrection is the beginning of something new. It's the beginning of the ascension. It is the installation of him as king. 
Psalm 2 continues, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I mean, this is what we're talking about. The resurrection was the decree going forth. Jesus is the king that God had established. And then notice what the father in Psalm 2 tells the son is his reward, is his inheritance for his work. This is what it says, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has risen. He's been given the nations to rule. He is a king on the holy mountain. Right? In fact, it was on a mountain that Jesus took his disciples up to and then told them that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. That's where he took them. He is the king. And then he tells them on that mountain, I've been given all authority, now go disciple the nations. The nations are his. And he sends his disciples out to baptize and teach them to obey him. The Great Commission is Jesus essentially is saying, the nations are mine. Go get them, boys. No. Many will go ahead and, and, and in their head, they'll supply the words that they want to add into the reading of the Great Commission. And they will read it to say something like, go make disciples out of the nations. As if the only work of the Great Commission is individualistic. It's getting people out of the nations. But that's not what the Greek text says. It says disciple the nations. Yes, individuals are a part of this. You can't disciple nations without individuals. And you make disciples of individuals by baptizing them and teaching them. And in doing that, you're discipling whole nations, right? You're baptizing individuals. You're teaching them to obey all that the Lord commands. And, and his commands impact every area of life. Now, this isn't the end of Psalm 2, though. Jesus is king. He has all nations as an inheritance. Now, what else does it say? Well, here's the very conclusion of it, right? Now, therefore, when you get that word, therefore, you always know it's like a conclusion. Everything that just came before is now being uh, applied. It's, it's getting its fullness here. Because of everything, because Jesus is king, now, therefore, all kings show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, but he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Jesus is king, and now all other kings are being warned. Obey him or be destroyed. Or as Isaiah says, the nation that will not serve you, or that you being God, that will not serve him will perish. The nations will be judged by the Lord and their leaders too, and they will perish if they do not serve him. And a question I have is, is well, where is pluralism? Where is idolatry protected in this passage? Where is it said that civil magistrates ought not obey the law of God, that ought not be the standard? Where is it implied that a nation making laws for its own good in accordance with God's commands is bad? No, the nations will perish if they don't obey him. Now, Psalm 2 ends with this great blessing, though. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, of course, this applies to individuals. We are blessed when we take refuge in Christ. But, I mean, that's what our great hope is. Like, we, we are blessed when we take refuge in him. But remember that this passage was speaking to kings and judges first. If civil leaders want to be blessed, 
they should submit to Christ. And if a nation wants to be blessed, it should submit to Christ. Matthew Henry taking all of this and then uh, giving his commentary on the Great Commission, this is what he says. Quote, Christianity should be twisted in with national constitutions, that the kingdoms of the world should become Christ kingdoms and their kings the church's nursing fathers. Do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and click the bell to stay updated on all the latest patriarchy content. Click the thumbs up, share with all your friends and family. Leave a comment telling us what you think about Christian nationalism. Now, until next time, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, now, right now, is the time to do so. Repent and believe. And if you have, then this is our call as men. Build, fight, protect, lead. This is the Patriarch.